0: Welcome to another edition of the Policy Shop, the Illinois Policy Institute's podcast. I'm Joe Kaiser, and today we're going to explore a question that's constantly on a lot of Illinoisans' minds. How do we hold Mike Madigan accountable? Voters often feel helpless in keeping the longest serving state House Speaker in U.S. history in check. But on today's episode, Illinois Policy Director of Content Strategy Austin Berg explains how Madigan is able to remain in power as he walks us through the ways Madigan first rose to power to begin with. Berg, who wrote the documentary Madigan Power Privilege Politics, also discusses how Madigan's cunning political strategy and control of political funds can manipulate other lawmakers and what Illinoisans can do to push back. All this can be heard right here, and it begins right now. When, when do you think people started to recognize Mike Madigan's name and inquire about him and his power?
1: So as early as, like, or as recently, I should say, as the t- late 2000s, his name recognition was not good, um, meaning not just that people didn't like him, but people didn't know who he was, like didn't know the name Mike Madigan. Um, the people who did know who he was it was about a 50-50 split in terms of people who were favorable to him and people who were not. Um, towards sort of like post-recession, I, I can't even point to like an, an inciting incident, but polling data from uh, Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at Southern Illinois University did polls um, in sort of the late 2000s and then 2015, I think, and then 2016 and 2017, and by 2016, the guy was extremely well known and extremely disliked and as people learned more about him they learned how powerful he was over the legislative process and it became you know in 2015 when i was working here the easily the most common question that we were answered we were asked was who is this guy why is he so powerful and what can i do
0: about it You said no, like one incident led to the increase in name recognition. What do you think happened around that time, around the end of the recession that got people more aware of him?
1: I'm not sure. I mean, part of it was definitely Rauner's first campaign. He did mention Madigan a lot, not as much as now, but he was mentioned a lot. Um, Part of it would have been, Definitely the 2011 tax hikes. uh, He played a huge role in pushing that through at the last second I think that was actually big that that could have been it. That was a big wake-up call for people Because of the way it was passed um, Was in a matter of hours little or no debate and a bunch of people who voted for it ended up getting really nice side gigs after retiring from the legislature and I think a lot of people at that time may have said you know, how the hell did this happen and? started looking critically at the Illinois legislature because there had not been an income tax hike or any sort of large tax hike for, you know, 20, 30 years before that happened. So, right.
0: I guess when, when, when things start getting worse or they see like the, the income tax hike is something that people, a lot of people didn't welcome. They kind of want to connect the dots of why things are going poorly. So that makes sense. But what are the questions back in 2015 when you started fielding questions about Madigan, what were people asking about him? Good question.
1: I mean... Big one is is the biggest one, which was actually kind of encouraging. It wasn't like you know how did he get his power. It wasn't like how does the legislature work. It was what can I do to 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 reduce this guy's influence in some sense, um, and that kind of led us led me at least down this path where I I was reading pretty much every newspaper article that mentioned Mike Madigan from 1970 until. 2016. So reading everything that had been written about him, um, over the years and trying to figure out, you know, how does this guy operate? Uh, what led to his power by what mechanisms is he allowed to maintain that power? Uh, and really what is kind of his, his political philosophy and what motivates him. And really the best, the the best thing I've, I've, I've seen recently, sort of delving into that, uh, I only read this year, and it was this book called uh, Don't Make No Waves, Don't Back No Losers. And it's this incredible book that anyone who's interested in Madigan, I would highly recommend they read. Uh, It was written by this University of Chicago professor, his name was Milton Rakoff. And he was a political science professor and essentially embedded himself in the daily Chicago machine for a decade. So he did precinct work, he was like a ward captain, he did all these kind of like... um, From what time did this book come out? This book was published in 1975. Um, And it's fascinating because he, he did all this kind of dirty political work in the Daily Machine, he was slated for county office, he met all these characters, and he just lays out this very clinical analysis of how the whole thing works. And the title of the book, Don't Make No Waves, Don't Back No Losers, Is sort of the philosophy upon which this whole thing rests and don't make no way and it it applies exactly to how Madigan operates and you can slot every action he's taken over the last 30 plus years into that bucket don't make no waves is about staying under the radar he totally stayed under the radar even as one of the most powerful people in the state for 30 plus years Uh, and you do that by really not making any decisions based on any kind of Ideal about how government should work, about social issues, about um, you know touchy economic issues, tax hikes, things like this. You never want to put your neck out on the line if you're a Matty or Daily Style politician. Um, you because the the reason is when you make a decision that angers one group, they're gonna plow through the snow to get to that election, right? They're gonna do everything they can to vote you out of office, and the people who like your decision are gonna forget about it in three months. And it's that type of like, political and policy shrewdness and total lack of any ideology that has led him to be able to, one, control the state Democratic Party for so long, and two, control the state legislature for so long, and three, stay in office for so long.
0: Right, and that's something that was written in 1975 when he was still young in the legislature so he's he's staying under the radar in the 70s and 80s and not really having even when he becomes speaker of the house in in 1983 not really making any waves like you said to having anything associated Mm -hmm. with him but what's interesting about that is you have people that you know Illinoisans know Jim Thompson Jim Edgar George Ryan uh, Rob Lugojevich all these people Illinoisans can identify and go to the ballot box and if they don't like what's going on can can uh, take it out on them more or less. Um, totally. S- so that they don't have that political talent that Madigan might have, but Madigan can also, you know, associate a governor with the state of the state, even if Madigan's the one you, pulling the strings. Absolutely.
1: And and one thing that's really interesting about the book is, and people should remember, Madigan came up. His dad, um, you know, was in was a Democratic, I believe, precinct committeeman or ward committeeman. Um, I mean, I, I've spoke to his family members who came up in that system, and it was. He was a protege of dailies and came up under the entire system. So that, that's the mentality that we're talking about. And part of that mentality was Chicago. Uh, Chicago's political interests at that time really didn't care what party the governor was for decades, because if it was a Republican, you could kind of make them play ball because you weren't going to mess with their downstate interests where you had uh, a lot of Republican patronage and they weren't going to mess with your Chicago interests where you had a lot of Democrat patronage. So you could kind of, uh, you know, they would play ball, and Madigan would be able to look out for Chicago's interests essentially in the legislature, um, and that's part of the whole system, right? It's it wasn't really for a long time. The most important uh, divergence was not, you know, the most the most. Uh, what's another way to say it? Like the most visible enemies were not Democratic Party versus Republican Party, Illinois, and in, in Illinois, it was democrat and republican uh professionals would be the way that this book describes it versus the non-professionals the people who say no i actually have political ideals i i believe in you know say individual rights or civil liberties or i believe in a fiscally responsible government um it was essentially people who were professionally in politics versus people like that for 30 years and it's in that environment that that he was Able to survive for so long,
0: right? And he, uh, from his father and from the Daily Machine, had connections when he first started in politics. But let's start since you mentioned the 70s. Let's start there. How did this young attorney go from lawmaker, just regular lawmaker from Chicago, in the 70s, to then Speaker of the House in 1983?
1: So he he came up really through like the, the most typical route at that time to gain political power, which is really which is outlined in that book. And it, what's funny is he's only mentioned once in that book. Uh, The Madigan name is mentioned one time, and it's essentially uh, who are the uh, it's listing out all the ward committeemen, which are basically sort of the head of the party in each ward of the 50 wards in Chicago. He's the 13th ward uh, committeeman, and he's been that since, I believe, 1969, and he still is the 13th ward political committeeman. Uh, And that gives you power in sort of slating candidates, all these different things in, in the Democratic Party. So he starts as the ward committeeman, which was a family position for the Madigans uh, in uh, the southwest side of Chicago, he starts there. He, you know, is working at the city law department, clerks, uh, I think interns there, um, eventually hooks up with Daly, and old man Daley sends his son down uh, to the state for the Constitutional Convention of 1970. And with him, it's been said that he sort of sent Madigan to keep an eye on him. So both Madigan and the Younger Daly were both uh, uh, sent down as delegates to the 1970 Illinois Constitutional Convention. So that was really, and if you look at the transcripts of that 1970 convention, Madigan doesn't talk very much. He has very little to say. He's mostly working behind the scenes, keeping an eye on Chicago interests and on, on Daily, uh when he's at that at the convention. He, he runs for state representative from very soon after, Wins that race and then sort of starts building, 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 not in any way making any kind of name for himself. Again, he's not making any waves. He is not leading any you know, major policy initiative. He is not um, speaking out about the public issues of the day. He is not uh, talking about civil rights. He's not talking about any type of idea. He is just biding his time, making connections in the legislature. Uh, and he does that for about uh, almost 10 years. And that's when the 1980 census happens. And that is really the turning point of his political career. Because Madigan, uh, the Democrats, in a coin toss, win the ability to redraw the legislative maps for Illinois. And this is one of the most important sources of power uh, in Illinois, and still is today, is who draws the map, who draws the map of the state, who gets to pick um, what the district lines are. So you can draw them in favor of Democrats, you can draw them in favor of Republicans. It's a massive source of power in terms of how the legislature is made up. So. They basically, the Democrats win that coin toss and Madigan is chosen as the man who behind the scenes is actually making that map. And it is the most incredible map you've ever seen. That sounds like Trumpian kind of phrase, (laughs) but it's this amazing, it it is a very cunning, uh, you know, uh, really fantastic map for the Democrats. It still sounds Trumpian. Yeah, I know, fantastic, cunning. (laughs) The best um, Just. amazing map um there's never they never quite seen anything (laughs) like it uh and it was done by sort of uh you know carving out little spots that you could take a suburban vote share and combine it with chicago vote share so you would still lean democratic but you're taking away republican vote share did all of these things and and after that he could do no wrong he was king of the democratic party he was the most cunning cunning politician uh in the state it was the biggest victory you know for the democratic party really uh, in a long time in Illinois, was Madigan's map, and he was first uh, elected Speaker of the House in 1983, right after that that map went into effect. And those people who were elected on the map voted for him for Speaker.
0: So it's like a almost like a favor. Like this guy is so good for our party, and he he gave us these majorities mm-hmm. that we're gonna give him more power. Both because they probably you know feel like they owe him one and one in respect, but also because if he's this cunning drawing the maps, he'd be a cunning Speaker of the House in the Legislature.
1: Right. In some sense he earned it. And, and that's another thing about kind of the daily model of doing it is he proved his loyalty to the party. He did not uh, necessarily act in his own personal interest or in any ideological interest. He acted in the interests of the Democratic Party and specifically the Cook County Democratic Party. And if you do that for long enough, which he did, I mean he put in his hours for 10 years, uh, you are rewarded and he was rewarded in 1983 becoming the speaker uh, and very quickly became one of the most powerful politicians in the state. Now, he serves in that role for a while. He gets kicked out in the early 90s when the Republicans take over the House. Um, when the Republicans do that, they make a lot of changes to the House rules that make the speaker a lot more powerful. It was powerful before the Republicans, but they, they changed some of the rules to make the House Speaker even more powerful. So when Madigan takes over, after, you know, his time in the wilderness in the early 90s where he was, you know, eating honey and, like, you know, wandering in the desert. As, as minority leaders do. Yeah, exactly. And uh, he... Isn't that a biblical story? There's, like, a guy who eats honey? It, so- it sounds like something. Yeah, exactly. It does sound like yeah. something. We don't know if it is or not. Uh, so he's, yeah he's in the wilderness, and but he takes back control. Uh, and since then, that's really been the most massive source of, of his power is that is that speaker's chair and just as you said people returning a favor um you know for drawing that map the same thing happens with the speakership the exact same dynamic plays out every two years with the speakership
0: so that that's how he's able to hold those majorities Well, also coinciding with his role in the democrat party is is having people vote for him every two years because of that loyalty factor i think because you mentioned earlier that a lot of downstate there's a lot of downstate Republican patronage historically and, and a lot of downstate conservative voters more or less I think there's a, a growing sense that and this might be where the Madigan questions that you've received come in that your vote almost doesn't matter because Madigan's going to hold his majorities in the legislature and I think people maybe haven't understood how that's possible and are now maybe connecting the dots a little bit more because they see where his power come from, comes from and where how he's able to control the party and control the legislature. But I think that that's a major point of frustration would be people not feeling like their vote matters because they see that nothing's changing. And this guy has held power for that long.
1: Yeah. I mean, I've heard people tell me it seems like there's only one lawmaker in Springfield. Right. It's Maddie. Right. And to some, to a, to a freakish extent, not even being hyperbolic, that is true. Um, if he does not want a bill to pass, uh, for whatever reason, it is extremely unlikely that it, it will pass. Um, and you can't even say that for the governor. I mean, the governor can be, is overridden all the time by the legislature. Uh, he, it is, it's remarkable, and it, it definitely is no question why people have so little trust in Illinois state government and so little engagement. Uh, is because they feel like nothing can change. But yeah, I think the fact that he has become so visible now, partially because of the work that we've done and the other groups have done, And, you know, definitely because the Republican governor has said his name more than anyone else's name for the last uh, three, four years, um, he's definitely been brought out of the shadows and has become a huge liability for the party because people usually we see this at the national level all the time. Right. Like people hate Congress, but they love their congressperson. Right. And people don't quite understand how their state lawmaker is connected to Mike Madigan. Um, now, campaign literature is going to start doing that a lot. And I'm sure, like listeners to this, will have seen mailers, uh, depending on where they live, trying to connect the state representative to Mike Madigan. But it's really the and, and we we just are about to come out with a project now uh, showing how his money works and how lawmakers, rank and file lawmakers, are essential to keeping his power. And people should know that uh, when they're thinking about their own state lawmaker. So. The the top line number is, so Madigan controls four campaign committees. He controls the Democratic Party of Illinois, he controls Democratic Majority, he controls a group called Friends of Michael J. Madigan, of which there are very few, and the 13th Ward uh, campaign fund. So Madigan, in controlling the Democratic Party, and controlling all of those four funds, has given out nearly $15 million to sitting state representatives in Illinois. And those same—it's about 63, 64 state representatives that are sitting representatives that together have received 15 million dollars from Madigan. In return, those same 63 state representatives have voted for Madigan for speaker something like 280 times. Like it's a ridiculous number. Um, but that's really the dynamic that people need to understand: is if your lawmaker is voting for Madigan for speaker, that is where he derives an enormous amount of his power and if you don't like his influence uh, on the legislative process you can hold your your own state lawmaker accountable for that it's not just you don't need to live in uh, you know Madigan's district you don't need to be one of the 20,000 people or whatever that actually votes for him for state representative you you have uh, a choice and a voice in your own state lawmaker whether or not they're gonna give Madigan power
0: sure and from the lawmakers perspective it kind of makes sense when you connect the dots like that because some of these these top line, the, the, the representatives that receive the most money from, from Mike Madigan are in suburban Chicago districts that are often pretty competitive and every last dollar counts to getting reelected. So from a lawmaker, lawmaker's perspective, if all you have to do is promise to vote for this guy for speaker to get $1.3, $1.4 million in your campaign fund, it kind of makes sense for them.
1: Yeah, it definitely does. And, and it's certainly the people in the most competitive races that get the most money from him. And it'll be the, those same people are the people that through his power as speaker, he is able to protect from taking certain tough votes. So you might get, you know, a million dollars uh, from a Madigan campaign fund and you might, you probably won't have to take one difficult vote your entire time there. He can swap you out on committee votes. He can uh, make sure we saw this on the tax hike vote for, for instance, in 2017, there were a lot of vulnerable Democrats who he protected um, from not having to vote yes on the tax hike. So. You are treated very well by him um but when your constituents find out that you're the one <laughs> behind right uh, you you have a role in making madigan so powerful you know that's become a huge liability in illinois and it was not for a long time
0: the the protecting lawmakers on hard votes is that incredible political strategy that we talked about before the idea that he can you know, have the forward thinking and, and the wherewithal to to know, okay, these five or six Democrats are going to face tough reelections because of the makeup of their district. I can get them to vote no and get cover from some Republicans that came over and voted for the tax hike. Is just, and for all you everyone wants to say about the guy, that's some talented political strategy to know ahead of time and, and kind of move the chess pieces around to figure that out. It's incredible.
1: Mm-hmm. And he's he's stayed in forever because of that. And it's it's kinda sad though, right? Like that's that's the problem with a book. So I, I looked up when I read that book I was talking about, Don't Back No No Losers, uh, Don't Make No Ways, Don't Back No Losers. I was looking around trying to see what national media said about that book when it came out. Because it's it's really this clear eyed clinical look at the 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 machine, the 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 real sort of like cogs and wheels of the machine down to a very local uh, you know block by block level and it's not kind of like a Mike Royko book where it's talking about daily's personality and how terrible this is and it's Soviet Russia it's very much just a clinical look at it um, and the New York Times wrote about it and basically said this is this is a disgusting book because it doesn't make any moral judgments about that stuff uh, it just says this is how the machine works this is how they keep their votes this is how the services get delivered to people this is how the patronage system works and it doesn't make any moral judgments. So we can sit here and talk about like, you know, this guy is a political wizard, which he is. And, and you see headlines throughout the years, like in the 80s and 90s, literally calling him a political wizard, which he is. But we cannot discount the fact that that has serious policy implications for Illinois. Right. And the amount of havoc that has been wreaked by the system that is so centralized and allows for no meaningful public debate around issues that allows for very few sort of bottom-up solutions, it's always top-down, has had massive effects on the state's economy, massive effects on the state's middle class, massive effects on the state's population, because you can't keep doing that for 30 or 40 years and expect to be a a thriving state. You cannot have one-person control. It doesn't even matter who it is. It could have been been a Republican that had done the same thing for 30 or 40 years, and the state would not be in a good spot. Um, But Madigan, specifically, he is a political wizard, but we can't discount the terrible effects that that has had on the state.
0: Right. And you touched on something there when you were mentioning the book, is is another comment that we get a lot on fe- feedback, we get a lot on, on things is, well, this is just the way things are. This is the way it's always been. And, and there's no point. I think I mentioned before that some people feel like their vote doesn't matter. But when we're talking about the dynamic between Madigan and lawmakers mm-hmm. and getting votes for, for Speaker of the House, there is quite a bit that can change. I mean, the vulnerable seats—the ones worth the tough election—you kind of understand why they feel compelled to always vote for Madigan for Speaker when they're getting that much money in their campaign coffers. But there are a lot of uncompetitive Democrat seats, and you would think that if you know one maybe more progressive-leaning independent Democrat voice stood up and said, "I mean, we did—we did see that Scott Drury mm-hmm. ran for Speaker of the House." two years ago, but there wasn't as much attention, I think, as there, there could be in the future. If if one of them just stood up and said, hey, I don't care about Madigan's campaign fund, and if other peop- other politicians felt the pressure of un- Madigan's unpopularity, that could cause some change well, with the Speaker vote and with the, in the House.
1: Yeah, I mean, two years ago was the best example of this. Um, or, you know, one and a half years one and ago. And a half years ago. Uh, yeah. It was the first time a Democrat had voted President for the Speaker in 30 years. And that sounds small and insignificant, but it's not at all. And it was a total signal of things changing uh, in Springfield and what you could see happen in the future because he is just such a liability. People really dislike him for good reason. And if you are, and I always talk to my friends who are, you know, progressive Democrats um, that say, you know, well, Madigan, you know, protects us from Bruce Rauner. So you got to like him for that reason. But if you're a progressive, Mike Madigan is not your friend by any means, and any policy choice that you care about, whether it's, you know, a really high minimum wage or single payer health care or things like that. I mean, Madigan's a massive impediment to getting any of your policy goals done as well. And not just, you know, not just say passing those things into law, but even having any kind of legitimate public legislative debate about any of those issues. Um, If you're a progressive, Madigan prevents that. So, yeah, I think... I would not be surprised, depending on what happens in November, uh, in January, if you have some left-leaning Democrats voting for uh, someone else for speaker, possibly mounting, mounting some kind of challenge. Um, and if Republicans take back the House, yeah, you can be quite sure that he'll not right. be speaker. Uh, but I think, yeah, a good, a good corollary, too, is like everyone thought that about the Daily Machine, um, that it would never stop and there were legal decisions. The Shackman decrees uh, in the 70s prevented pa- uh, pa- patronage hiring, took a big hit out of patronage, had a had a massive effect on the, the, the viability of that machine, and it's changed a lot. There's still all sorts of terrible governance structures in Chicago, but it's a lot different. And you do have, uh, you know, voices of dissent, and you certainly are starting to have that in Springfield. So, you know, I would not be Working here or writing about any of those issues, if I didn't think that his his days were numbered to some extent,
0: and if part of his days being numbered might be just because he's kind of a relic of the past, all these things you mentioned, the guy—I mean, the guy lives like it's forty years ago in a lot of a lot of ways. Doesn't keep a cell phone; very old school with a lot of his tactics. So he—he's almost his style is those days are numbered, probably definitely, and,
1: and you saw that with um, the. Revelations of um, sexual harassment and sexual assault um, in Springfield and within the Democratic political organization in Illinois. He has no ability to deal with an issue like that because that wasn't talked about 30, 40 years ago. Um, but at the same time, he handled that huge scandal where, and if people don't know, there was uh, two or three high-level Democrats in Illinois, um, high-level within the Democratic Party, uh, accused of sexual harassment, um, with compelling evidence and compelling testimony from uh, the subject of that of that harassment in all three cases, and v- Madigan very much took a took a page out of the Daily Handbook and appointed a committee to look into the issue. Um, said everything was under control. Um, gave some semblance of discipline to those three people even though you know they're still very much involved in illinois politics but enough for the media to calm down uh and essentially made some cosmetic changes made a couple changes to the inspector general's office in in the state house and has largely weathered that uh there's no one in the party still talking about that issue
0: well that's incredible even so taking one of those examples lou lang that day that that the allegations came out. That was the biggest story in Illinois politics. A week or two later, it's gone. All of a sudden, I don't know if it says more about Madigan or about the the Springfield press corps and media at large about how that disappeared. I mean, what do you what do you think? Using that example, how does that issue just disappear when it's a major issue? Like nationally, people since last fall were talking about the the Me Too revelations that were coming up constantly. In Springfield, it was a, a thing that had a short attention span.
1: Very short attention span. The reason is because uh, politically, give, the structural advantages that Madigan has uh, are really, really difficult to overcome. So, if you have, for instance, like a congressperson who is embroiled in this big debate, uh, there's a lot of levers people can pull on to get that person to resign. Uh, whether it's talking to their big funders, you know, like massive donors to their campaign might tell them to resign. Uh, Party leadership might tell them to resign uh, because they're hurting the party. There is no check on Madigan's power whatsoever. So when you have big scandals come up, there is no, beyond uh, the media covering the issue, which they did, I mean, there there was huge media attention on these things in Illinois over a pretty sustained period of time laying it particularly it was definitely short and that was weird uh that it, was, it only lasted like a week uh but there was months of talking about uh, Shaw de kramer who was a democratic party lieutenant tim mapes who was madigan's second in command also uh, accused of sexual harassment in the workplace um those conversations went on for months in the media but what are you supposed to do if you're state representative he controls all the money in the party he controls whether your bill lives or dies in the General Assembly, and uh, he has really no reason to give up his power, and no one can legitimately challenge him for his power until the next Speaker vote. So there's really no uh, there's really no reason for um, you know like uh, there's there's no check on his power in place. So of course that will eventually die off because nothing else will happen. He will just stay there. Until the next time, or until that speaker vote. Really, that is the one check that we have.
0: Right. So that's yeah. But so he's outlasting over time, like this media example of you know these lawmakers don't have um, much of a reason to go against him. The media he can outlast the media in these examples. How? What about his political? Ability, or are there other factors at play that allow somebody like this to, for 30, almost what, 40 years, who's mm-hmm. been in the state house, to just continue on without very many checks? Because it, when we've outlined everything, we've connected the web from the Democratic mm-hmm. Party to the Daily Machine, how he, he rose to the, the speakership. But you would think it's somewhere along the line when things are getting worse for the state that. Something would have to break either the media would have to to break or democratic lawmakers would have to break Is it just that this system that he set up is so powerful and the rules? He set up in the house are so powerful that it's not going to cause any of these institutions to break away and say, you know enough is enough
1: part of it is that and he actually gave this interview that we used um, in the documentary pretty extensively because it's one of the only Longer taped interviews that he's ever done and it was done in the 90s Uh, and the the person who was hosting the show asked this question, sort of about, uh, "Hey, do you, there's allegations of, you know, intimidation, hardball tactics, um, all of these things. Do you think, you know, do you do you think that's something you do? What do you think of that?" And Madigan's answer was pretty interesting. He said, sort of, uh, "If that was the case, my colleagues would not elect me to be speaker." And that's true to some extent, but it's also indicative of the fact that he does take care of his members or they would not vote for him. Um, he takes care of the people that are loyal to the party, which you would expect, you know, of any politician. But he, he's he's going to make lawmakers lives as easy as possible. He's going to provide compi- provide all of their campaign staff. He is going to provide uh you know the mailing vendors that do all their campaign literature he is going to tell them what to vote for he's going to tell them when to sit out he's going to tell them when to come down to springfield he provides a full service to those members and that's why that's that's a big reason why he has never been legitimately challenged for the speakership role one of it part of it is he has massive power right he could he could primary you he could Make sure none of your bills get a hearing. He could take you off all these committees. All that stuff's true. But he also takes care of the people that are there.
0: Yeah, and I think that that shows that even with his unpopularity, there is a segment of people that he does take care of that really, truly do like him, people in his district, um, labor unions. uh, You could even see some Democratic lawmakers. uh, When we were following the Speaker vote two years ago, Marty Moylan yelling, we like Mike to the mm-hmm. labor unions outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are people, obviously, he takes care of. Trial lawyers. Trial lawyers, absolutely, that do that do like him. Um, one thing we haven't talked about is what is his motivation? We've talked about lawmakers' motivation to keep him in power. What is his motivation to stay in power? A lot of people might just get bored of this whole racket after four decades, I think I would.
1: I don't know. I, it's hard to say why someone would want to stay in that position for that long Um, I'm sure I'm sure part of it is why does anyone love their career Um, there's a guy I mean I I was obsessed with um, this writer Cal Newport in college and he wrote a book called I can't remember the name of it basically about um, finding joy in one's career path Uh, I think it's called so good they can't ignore you I want to say that's that's the title of the book And this whole notion of like people following their passion versus finding what they're good at um, and trying to create value. And then through becoming so good at your job, that's where you derive like real joy in your career. And I could totally see that happening for Madigan. Like he is very good at this one thing. And
0: but what is that one thing? So, like, one
1: thing is politics, right? Yeah. He's very good at uh, making sure the Democratic Party controls. Its interests in uh, Springfield and in Chicago.
0: But we, you said before, and I think this is evident to people, is he's not motivated by any one ideology. I mean, it would be more evident if he was this progressive liberal who cared about progressive causes and was fighting for this for for four decades, or if he was a conservative Republican and cared about conservative causes for four decades. But there's no mo- like driving force mm-hmm. ideologically that is is motivating him. There's no specific policy that's motivating him so when you say it's politics and he clearly is good at politics what mm-hmm. do you think is the thing that he he cares about
1: it's just the team you know that's the team he's on so he when i say he loves politics i don't mean he loves any one policy idea i'm, I'm saying he li- he literally loves the fact it could be called you know the the uh the what was teddy roosevelt's party bull moose bull it could moose, be the bull yeah. moose party like this is the team he belongs to. This is a team he came up with in Chicago. This is what his family was involved in. Uh, and he has been the best person at maintaining that power arguably in American history in a state house. He has been, he broke the record for the longest serving state house speaker in not just in Illinois, in the history of the United States. Uh, what is there, what more is there for her, for him to gain I don't know. Why does any uh, what is he seventy six now 75, 74, somewhere around there? Why does anyone that age stay in their career because they, they feel it makes them feel alive and needed and and fulfilled in some sense? And I'm sure he feels that way. I don't want to play armchair psychologist with Mike Madden, sure. but yeah. I don't know what his motivations exactly are. But I would I would guess it has something to do with that. He's really good at it, and people tend to do things they're really good at for a long time.
0: I I, I ask that question in part because people right now probably see. Casual observers to Illinois politics and policy you probably see this as a, a Rounder versus Madigan thing right now, especially in a an election year. Kind of two sides, what path, um, and they're always talking about each other, so that makes sense. But it's important to remember that this guy's battled with so many governors before him, and he'll. If Pritzker's the next governor; they might work hand in hand on certain things. But if he stays around for a couple more governors, it's going to be. The same Mike Madigan. It's going to be the same. Whatever's driving him, it's going to be the same thing. It's not just this snapshot of four years where Bruce Rauner is governor.
1: Right. Um, There. That's true uh, to to a great extent. Um, But the other important the the important thing to notice, though, is that this is the only governor that has been by far the most outwardly hostile toward him and and totally opposed. And a governor that does genuinely seem driven by. Uh, principles, sort of like uh, p- political and policy principles, uh, that's clearly part of what is driving Bruce Rauner. Um, whereas there were previous Republican and Democrat governors who uh, were more than happy to simply serve the role, have their interests met, um, and have a pretty cordial relationship with him. Um, but I mean, think about the Think about who was governor, why Bruce Reiner's governor in the first place. Um, Pat Quinn by no means had a good relationship with Mike Madigan, and it's because Pat Quinn has serious ideology that he cares about. He cares about voter participation. He cares about democracy. Um, he has these very high... He, he's always been this kind of reformer guy within Democrat, you have a lot of disagreements with Pat Quinn, and I have very many about his, his policy positions, but he genuinely believes in certain policy ideas and that's not how madigan operates and they clashed uh, a great deal so it's not just rauner um you're right it, it was democrats but it, it's it's really as i said before a a clash not between republicans and democrats but between insiders and outsiders in the party
0: exactly and and you see a lack of ideological like there isn't much of an ideological battle when you see Madigan and Jim Thompson working side by side or or Madigan and George Ryan working side by side.
1: Yep, or Jim Edgar. I mean, like, Jim Thompson signed some of the most, um, some extremely uh, pro-union measures during his time in office, Uh, you know, making sure that there was extremely strong government union influence uh, on policy making in Illinois. That was, uh, Thompson was more than happy to do that. Jim Edgar, you know, push the pension problem 30, 40 years into the future happily. Um, and that that's that's part of the problem when you have one person in power so long, is everybody is defined by their relationship to that person and what they can do together to, uh, you know, avoid conflict, avoid rocking the boat, avoid making waves, um, and ensure that the people they want to keep winning elections keep winning them, whether it's the Republican Uh, local government officials in areas of Illinois that are um, corrupt to some extent, or local Democrat officials who are corrupt to some extent, uh, those interests were met while the larger interests of Illinois were not being met.
0: Yeah, the insider versus outsider way of framing things is good because that insider way is also what you've been talking about, like this old school mentality of machine politics. Whereas these outsiders are actually true reformers, whether what no matter what party they are, uh, people who actually care about policy, staying on yeah. the outside that aren't let in to, to actually make decisions in Springfield.
1: Yeah. And what's really interesting, not to keep coming back to this book, but I seriously think everyone should read this book if you're interested in Illinois politics and how it works. Um, Milton Rakoff, Don't Make No Ways, Don't Back No Losers. But a really important part of that book, you have to realize while reading it, is all of that machine operated because of patronage hiring. and. We can be cynical and say, you know, it's still all a huge patronage game in Illinois, which, yeah, there's political hiring all over the place in Illinois. But it is far less than the literal army you could create uh, in the 50s, 60s and 70s in Illinois. It is far different. So if you're a machine candidate, there's very few left in Illinois. There's a Madigan and you've got Ed Burke in, in Chicago. And those are really the only two guys that have any semblance left of a real sort of patronage political army of people who can drive out the vote and get people in office. What's interesting now about kind of, especially the advent of social media and which Madigan has no interest in whatsoever, but did create a Facebook page last year, which was really funny. Uh, but you can have people both on the left and the right, create grassroots uh, quote unquote armies, but it, volunteer people who really believe in in ideals versus uh, just a party. Uh, who wants to win elections. But when you have those people, uh, that's really inspiring. Uh, and you can really change outcomes that way because you put people in office who are not really beholden to any of the the structure that has been put in place by
0: people like Madigan. Right. The patronage thing is is a thing of the past. And when you said that time isn't really on Madigan's side, it's not like, an, like he's an older gentleman, Ed Burke, they've been around forever. That's not what it means by time's not on their side. Time not being on their side is just... The style of doing things is going away. It's, it's a thing of the past. And mm-hmm. that's, that should be a, a, a shred of optimism for, for voters.
1: Definitely. And like Chicago is, was the same way. Chicago was the last bastion of true machine politics uh, of any major city in the country. And I've been working on a book about sort of the vestiges of that for the last two years. Um, Chicago is the last place where you had sort of that strongman mayor model. And to some extent, Illinois is really the last state where you have that in a state legislative body. And I think both of those are in the next five to 10 years are, are due for an enormous change in
0: governance. And I think that could happen. So when you're fielding questions now, as you said that Madigan's been more visible the last four or five years, how are you, when people say that question that we said at the outset, what can I do about Mike Madigan? What is your response?
1: You, that's a good question. I mean, it's important to talk to people that you know about how it works because people are so disengaged politically. Uh, you know, To some extent, some people are more engaged than they've ever been in the state legislative process. And we certainly see that in our community. But a lot of people have given up on the state um, for valid reasons. Uh, and a lot of people, but once, this is so cliche, but like the knowledge of the process is power and it's power because once you understand how things work, you can understand how they can change. Uh, If you don't understand how anything in Springfield works and everything you read is, well, Mike Madigan did this, Madigan did that. Nothing matters unless Madigan says so. That's a bleak world to live in. If you understand why that system is in place and who empowers it and how your voice impacts it. So, for instance, you're a lawmaker voting for Madigan for Speaker. That's a big, that's a huge, huge factor there. Um, If your lawmaker votes for the House rules, that's a massive factor there in in terms of how this guy is able to retain power. When you start understanding that, you can start pointing to solutions and you can start saying, hey, uh, I'm going to contact my lawmaker about this or I'm going to write a letter to the editor or I'm going to sign this petition. Um, That stuff matters in Springfield still. And what's really funny about all this is that it matters to Madigan too. If his members say, "I can't, I can't vote for this tax hike. It's too politically ridiculous. It's, it's, it's too politically toxic." All my constituents are talking to me about it. That's a language he understands. He doesn't care about the ideology, but he doesn't care if Illinois needs revenue or if it doesn't. It's all about can he keep his members in office uh, and keep his party in control in the Illinois General Assembly, and that is a massive strength for him over the years. But it's also an opportunity for people. Uh, it, it's a massive strength for him, but it's also makes him uh, somewhat have to listen to the concerns of his members. And that's where people can have an influence.
0: Right. And the fact that this is more of a recent thing of people actually knowing who Madigan is and, and following what's going on in the state house should actually be a cause for optimism when people are saying that their vote doesn't matter and that they're frustrated. It's only really been 2013, 14, 15, where people are starting to, to notice what's going on with Mike Madigan what's going on with the state house and now people are really starting to connect the dots a little bit more between their lawmaker the money involved and and votes for speaker I think you saw that in uh, 2016 when or 20 guess January 2017 when you did have a lawmaker vote present and you did have people following the speaker vote a little bit more it wasn't much I think if you're if you were a very very casual observer of Illinois politics you might have not been too focused on it but it's a moving the needle in a direction where people are more focused on it
1: definitely definitely um yeah the guy he's a fascinating character and people are starting to wake up to that i don't know if i have i had some thought about you know some high-minded thing i was going to say about how people know about madigan but i forgot
0: that's fine we can end it there austin Berg, (laughs) director of content strategy at the illinois policy institute thanks so much Thanks, you to learn more about Madigan's financial influence in the General Assembly, visit madiganmoney.com. That's madiganmoney.com to see how much cash the Speaker has given your lawmaker. You can also read more on Madigan's power and the House rules at illinoispolicy.org. And you can learn more about how to take action by joining our private Facebook group, the Lincoln Lobby. Until next time, this has been The Policy Show.